Do not listen to the surveillance capitalists who want you to be an open book for the sake of others' commercial gain. That is misdirection, euphemism, and mendacity. It is probably not a huge secret that internet companies are making billions of dollars off of our data. So how did we get here? Well, it turns out that a lot of this started with everybody's favorite search engine. Google, of course, is no longer just a search engine. Right. They do all kinds of things. There's Chrome, Gmail. There's YouTube. Google Earth. Self-driving cars, AI. So it seems like a company that is doing all kinds of things. But our guest this week says that they actually have one goal. Google is the most focused business operator on Earth. It has one business. Everything that Google does is constructing supply chains to flow into its dark satanic mills to spit out its prediction products, to sell to business customers who want to buy your future. Ooh, mama. This is Raw Data, a podcast about how information becomes power. I'm Andrea Mustaine. I'm a science journalist. And I'm Mike Osborne. I used to be a scientist, and now I do this. On this episode, an interview with Shoshana Zuboff about surveillance capitalism. Shoshana Zuboff just wrote a book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. The subtitle is The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power. Zuboff is a retired professor from the Harvard Business School. She was actually one of the first women to be tenured there. Her last big book came out a while ago, back in 1988. It was called The Age of the Smart Machine, and it was way ahead of its time. Zuboff foresaw the way that computers would change how we work. So she spent 10 years, an entire decade, working on this book about surveillance capitalism, and she pretty much single-handedly introduced that term, surveillance capitalism, into the conversation about what tech companies are doing with our data. It's a big idea, and it's a big book. So before I interviewed her, I was really wondering, how am I going to do this justice in a conversation? Since so much of the story does trace back to Google... I started the interview by asking her about Google's origins in the late 90s during the height of the dot-com boom. You know, the dot-com bubble is often remembered for a lot of companies that did not have a business model. What was Google's business model and how did that evolve? Well, I think Google was another one of those fledgling companies that did not yet have a clear business model. There was a wide agreement that they had the best search engine. They got the most prestigious venture capitalists investing in their search engine. And there were various ideas on the table for how ultimately this search engine would be monetized. But then the bubble burst. And then the bubble burst. 
Good morning, Jeffrey. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I guess the valuations are so incredibly high that at some point they hit the ceiling and come back down. We've been big buyers of telecoms. And that and, uh, brought a clear state of emergency. Our next guest says technical indicators suggest the worst may not be over for this troubled sector. It's like a game of chicken. To the Valley, to all these little companies, and of course the Google founders were right in there. Despite their brilliance and their great search engine, it turned out that they were not invulnerable. Google's investors were making noises that they could not continue to fund this project. And so the pressure was on for them to find a fast track to monetization. And that's when the breakthroughs occurred that led eventually to the discovery and elaboration of a new economic logic. Now, just to set the scene a little bit, in 1998, there were other search engines out there. AltaVista was big, Yahoo used to be known for search, and people were using websites like Ask Jeeves to find things on the internet. But when Google came along, they blew everybody out of the water. Their search results were just better, more relevant. But as Shoshana told me, they also developed a new way of making money. And there was one engineer in particular who was instrumental in changing Google's fortunes. Some of that traces back to an engineer named Amit Patel. Who was he? Can you tell us what his contribution to Google's history is? Well, Amit was one of the people who had been aware that as people search and browse, turns out there are collateral behavioral data that is produced in the experience of searching and browsing. And at that point, all that collateral stream of behavioral data was not valued. It was called data exhaust. It was assumed to be waste material. And it was collected on servers, but haphazardly. There was no real logic to its storage. And Amit Patel seems to be one of the key people who began kind of messing around with these data and seeing what's really in here. And among the first to really discover that these data seem to have some very powerful predictive value. This was the discovery that led Google to change its business model, right? It turned out that this data exhaust, all these data that were just kind of lying around, had incredible predictive power. It could basically predict where someone was going to click next. And this opened the door for advertising. But according to Zuboff, there was real reluctance on the part of Google's founders, Larry Page and Sergey Brin. The Google founders... You know, they had rejected online advertising, and they said that online advertising would not only disfigure the internet, but it would distort the nature of the search engine itself. So they were very leery of advertising. They looked down on advertising. But remember, this was after the dot-com bubble burst. So under these conditions, the founders declared a state of exception during which time they suspended their principles about advertising and what its consequences for search and for the internet in general would be. And they said, advertising is going to be 
our fastest route to monetization. Now, the new idea was that they were now going to turn to these abandoned data logs, and they were going to pull these data, they were going to combine them with their already frontier computational capabilities, and we're going to come out with a prediction, and we're going to sell that to the advertisers. And so at this point, surveillance capitalism, a nascent idea, is born. So here are the seeds of surveillance capitalism. So in this new way of doing business, Google is the one who's taking control of who is seeing the ads and where they go. That shifted the balance of power. There was a reaction among the advertisers because now what happened was Google turned the whole ad thing into a black box. So what do these advertisers want? The advertisers are now bidding on a small, tiny fragment of future behavior. What you will do. So now what these advertisers are put in the position of, we're no longer choosing where our ads go, no longer alignment with our brand values, whatever. Now it's simply, we're buying a prediction of human behavior about who's gonna click through on our ad. So these markets completely transformed to now markets that are trading exclusively in what people will do. So did the users notice anything? So 2001 is essentially where, you know, these elements appear to have all come together. Behavioral surplus combined with computation, producing predictions of human behavior, being sold into these new markets, and all of this being done outside of the awareness of the people whose data it is in the first place. No user can tell that this is being done. All backstage operations designed to keep the source of the behavioral data in ignorance. It works because it's hidden from view. It works because it's hidden because people didn't know they were giving up this information. And it was pretty clear that if you ask them, they would say no. Hmm. So that's where the surveillance in surveillance capitalism comes because from the very beginning, it was understood that these systems had to be designed to keep us in ignorance. The one-way mirror. The bubble bursts when? 2000? The bubble bursts 2000, 2001. Okay. So this idea, the seeds of this idea are born. Who in the government is watching this? Is the Federal Trade Commission doing anything? (laughs) All right. So 2001 was a momentous year because that was the year in which Surveillance capitalism was discovered, invented, elaborated. It was also the year of the tragedies of 9-11. This, Justin, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. And, we have and it's an important part of this story. That a plane has Huge crashed into one of the towers. smoke in the, the second country. tower. This was the second of the two towers hit. So we know from the historical record that Even in the days leading up to 9-11, even on September 10th, 
there was important privacy proposals for new privacy legislation that were being discussed in Congress. And when you look at the substance of those proposals, there's a fair chance that had they been passed, surveillance capitalism as we know it today, much of it would have been against the law. It never would have been able to develop. That's an astonishing fact. I mean, when you think about, when I think about 9-11, I think about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, a shift in national security priority. I do not think about its impact on our economic systems. But that's the story as you see it. It is the story as I see it, because um, there are there are very solid accounts about what happened, and that literally in a 24-hour period between September 10th and September 11th, the whole discussion in Congress shifted, and now the focus was total information awareness. There was a, a shock and fear. There are things going on in our country that we didn't know about. And we must have systems that will allow us to detect these kinds of nefarious activities, find them, track them, stop them. So early on, folks in the intelligence agencies, folks in the Defense Department, they understood that now these fledgling companies in Silicon Valley were actually developing important capabilities that could become key surveillance mechanisms, undetectable, backstage, out of awareness, designed to keep people ignorant, but with this huge advantage of being outside of constitutional constraints. So if you're in the government, even if you're trying to be secret, eventually you have to answer to the American Constitution. And eventually you have to answer to American law. But if you can develop this stuff in the private sphere, you do not answer to the Constitution. You do not answer to law. And as long as we can keep their pathway free of legal impediment and kind of nurture and incubate their development, then we're developing a surveillance capability under the aegis of private capital that will become a resource for state surveillance when and as needed. Can I bring up just one thing? Yeah. I, I was a little surprised to hear her say that there was a concerted effort on the part of the government to leverage the capabilities that Silicon Valley, and I guess Google, Google and maybe others in Silicon Valley were building that, that surprised me. I, I haven't heard that before. Yeah, this is underreported. And to this day, it's still not really well known or understood. But according to Zuboff, after 9-11, there was a new level of cooperation between Silicon Valley companies like Google and intelligence agencies like the NSA. Some of this came out during the Snowden revelations in 2013, but there's still a lot that we don't know. Okay. Wow. So... To return to Google's story, this idealistic company is created in the late 90s. The bubble bursts, they enter a financial emergency. In that state of emergency, targeted advertising is created. It may not have taken root, but 9-11 happens. 
just to make sure we cover it, once Google develops targeted advertising, what happens to their profits and their revenues? Between 2001 and 2004, they are seeing its incredible success, but no one else has any idea. When they finally IPO in 2004 and the public gets some access to these numbers, what you see is that in the year 2000, their revenue line was about $86 million. In the year 2004, their revenue line was about $3.2 billion. That meant a revenue increase, a percent increase over that short period of time of 3,590%. That's a big number. That's a big number. That must have gotten the attention of the investors in Silicon Valley. So from there, everything was golden because they had figured out the as the crow flies route to monetization on the internet. There's a lot of money to be made in predicting what people will do. But it goes a level deeper because if you're in the business of predicting behavior, then it also makes sense to try and nudge or direct behavior. The more accurate your predictions are, the more valuable. And in some ways, this is not new at all. Advertising has always been about trying to change behavior, to try to get you to buy something that you might not otherwise buy. Right. What's different now is that there is so much more data about you specifically for people to draw from. Right. This is not just Google, though. According to Zuboff, surveillance capitalism started at Google, but very soon it began to spread. So tell me, how does this logic, this economic logic, spread to Facebook? Well, Facebook was uh, obviously, you know, the younger company. Now, it also had to figure out how to monetize. And that's when Mark Zuckerberg went after Sheryl Sandberg, who had been one of the architects of these new online advertising markets at Google. She had been one of the architects of surveillance capitalism. He went after her, and the idea was bring advertising to Facebook. So Sheryl Sandberg really ported this new economic logic over to Facebook, and in a way, you know, that made her something like the typhoid Mary of surveillance capitalism, patient zero, if you will, bringing the virus to Facebook, where she understood that the opportunities for behavioral surplus in Facebook were legendary. So in a way, I don't feel like it's worth our time to talk too much about Facebook, because I feel like once you understand this idea and how it was created at Google, and then how it spreads to Facebook, the, the same logic applies all throughout. That is correct. This is an economic logic. It's not just a Google problem. It's not just a Facebook problem. It's an economic logic that is now spreading first this duopoly, and then through the valley, through the tech sector, and beyond. Okay, so let's talk about that. Microsoft, Amazon, what is the evidence? What's the story there that they have latched on to this idea? Well, um, the Microsoft story, uh, you know, was a different story. It was a service and product business. 
but under its new leadership with Nadella's CEO, he has publicly lamented that they missed out on this real online advertising juggernaut, which is another way of saying that they missed out on surveillance capitalism. And much of what he has instituted during his tenure has taken them in this direction. Seeking uh, surplus behavior, selling to advertisers, selling to other kinds of business customers. This time, Microsoft facing European privacy probes over Windows 10. So my conclusion is that Microsoft has definitely moved in the direction of surveillance capitalism. Bing, for instance, clocked in a 20.7% share in US. Amazon is another interesting example. In the beginning, it really looked like Amazon, for all the masses of data that it collected, largely devoted that data to the improvement of its service. It's 10.07 p.m. Tonight, you can look for cloudy skies. But now that Amazon has moved into these personalized services, the digital assistants, the Alexa and the Echo and all of these, all these things, the mesh networks and the, uh, the smart home. You have five items on your shopping list. Butter, milk, All pepper. of this stuff. Th- this has put them squarely in the surveillance capitalist camp. What about the telecoms? The telecoms, I mean, the ISPs and the telecoms have moved here. Verizon announced today it's buying AOL for more than $4 Verizon has agreed to buy Yahoo for a whopping $4.8 billion. They're very clear about collecting data from online and increasingly offline behavior, using those data for predictions. We see now... You know, the insurance industry, behavioral advertising, behavioral underwriting. We see in healthcare, we see in education, we see in finance, we see in retail. Virtually every product that begins with the word smart, every service that begins with the word personalized, these are your signals that you've entered the zone of surveillance capitalism. So we see this kind of eating what we used to think of as the regular economy, the product and service economy, and turning it into a parasitic data economy. And I use the word parasitic not in a hyperbolic sense, but because this is now data about us, but not for us. This is going to, given that, this is going to sound like a sort of insane devil's advocate question, but I don't know. I guess there's, there is still an attitude out there of, ah, so what? So what? I, uh, what do I have to hide? I'm curious to hear how you respond to that attitude, because I think it is still very common. Yes, I agree with you, Michael. It is common. And in part, that attitude is the triumph of how surveillance capitalists have been able to operate behind stage. One of the things I like to say is that our ignorance is their bliss. So 
you know, they've been telling us the story of empowerment and democratization all these years. They've been telling us that they're giving us free services. But what's really happened is that our alternatives have been foreclosed. There's no place else to go where this stuff isn't happening. And so I'm stuck now in a world of no escape where I say, all right, well, they tell me if I've got nothing to hide, I've got nothing to worry about. So I'll just believe that because what am I going to do? And they tell me that this is an inevitable outgrowth of digital technology. And I don't want to be someone who's against progress. So I just have to be resigned and reconcile myself to this stuff. And I've really got no choice. The real fact is that when we buy the idea that if you have nothing to hide, then you have nothing to worry about, what we forget is, that, is the real truth, which is that if you have nothing to hide, Michael, then you are nothing. Because everything that makes you you, everything that is the source of your will and your imagination, your sense of individual sovereignty, autonomy, all of that comes from your inner resources, which are meant to be private, which are meant to be yours, which are not meant to be on display. And you choose how they are shared. So anyone who has nothing to hide has given up on their own self, which is the wellspring and the essential element for a functioning democratic society. We cannot have democracy without human beings who experience themselves as morally autonomous, as the sources of their own good judgment, and not as pawns on a board to be moved around by computational analysis for the sake of others' guaranteed commercial outcomes. And if you think that I'm being a little science fiction-y, all you have to do is think about what we've learned since the revelations of Cambridge Analytica, where these very same methods only pivoted a few degrees from commercial outcomes to political outcomes, where we have seen how populations have been manipulated toward guaranteed political outcomes, toward political behaviors, and how easy it was to do that as long as we believe that if I have nothing to hide, then everything is okay. And that was my interview with Shoshana Zuboff. All of this might leave you feeling kind of depressed, maybe a little terrified, and stuck with the question, what the heck are we supposed to do? What she is describing is big, and she says we can't just solve it by changing the privacy settings on our phones or by boycotting social media. The truth is that there is no simple remedy. But if there's one thing I take away from this book, I think Shoshana Zuboff has diagnosed a problem that a lot of people have struggled to describe. Once you name something, it can help you see it. Surveillance capitalism is a system that says, go out and collect as much data on people as possible, or at least as much as you can get away with. And the way all markets work is that unless you add some check, we tend to exploit resources to exhaustion, whether it's land, oil, water, labor, whatever. 
But in this case, the resource that's being exploited is our data. It's a system that extracts and plunders from us. You've been listening to Raw Data from PRX. This episode was written by Mike Osborne and produced by both of us. Our editor is Curtis Fox. Ian Koss is our sound designer. Our theme music is by Michael Linder at Hat Pineapple Productions. Additional support from John Barth, Genevieve Sponsler, and Ray Pang. Raw Data is supported by the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University, whose mission is to produce interdisciplinary research on critical global issues. Learn more about their research and upcoming events at fsi.stanford.edu. Funding for Raw Data is provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. I'm Mike Osborne. And I'm Andrea Mustaine.